Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. And those words were taken from the Tom Harper story, an epic film. It's, it's got laughter, it's got tears, it's got adventure, it's got heartbreak. It's the story of a young man who leaves behind the quiet domestic world of Waitrose Essentials and armed only with sun hat, some bug spray, and yes, his trusty selfie stick goes out around the world to find his true self in the world of adventure. And, oh, Oh, no, wait, no, 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 sorry. That was an extract from Wilbur Smith, Inspiring Adventures, which is actually a wonderful documentary about Wilbur Smith and his effect on his readers and the way in which his work has changed their lives. And we're very pleased to welcome today the director of the film, Aidan Woodward, who describes himself, I think, really quite modestly as a renegade maverick documentary filmmaker. And... Um, and he's done a wonderful job on this documentary. So, um, Aidan, first, how, this is a traditional opening question, how did this project start to come about? Um, it was a project that a friend of mine suggested, uh, who is involved in the Wilbur Smith Foundation. And um, he mentioned I could have free reign. So I jumped at it. Um, I've got a bit of Wilbur history, having read a few things growing up, and my dad used to read them and pretend that they were stories he'd made up as my bedtime stories. <laughs> and um, and so there was a there was an affinity. So I thought, why not? Brilliant. Yeah. We have. I should also say that we have a fourth guest, Chris Wynn, our hitherto silent, mysterious producer, who is stepping out from behind his massive control desk to join us today. Hi, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's very good to be here. And I must say, I wanted particularly to join this podcast because I'm one of those people who knew very little about Africa until I started reading Wilbur's books. And now I just cannot wait to go to Africa. And I am so envious of Tom that he actually got the chance to go and see all the places in, in um, Wilbur's books. And I'm hoping I should be able to follow in Tom's and Wilbur's footsteps one day. But I do have one question for Aidan, just to start with. Um, was Tom temperamental as a star? Did he demand his own Winnebago, white lilies, a mint on his pillow at night and that sort of thing? Or was he well behaved? Well, this very mild, calm mannered man you hear before you is, is an act. Yes, he's a complete diva. Um, he, he take after take after take, very demanding. Um, he's just like that with us too. Yeah. Absolutely. I've had nothing but trouble with him. Yeah, disaster. <laughs> Quite moody. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was an 
absolute, <laughs> it was an absolute joy. It was an absolute joy. Very, very lovely to work with. But, but Tom, I must say, did you, you know, was it as magical as it sounded on the documentary to actually see those places you read, read about? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, and I was lucky on two counts. I was lucky in the first place to go in the first place uh, because I'd been working on the Wilbur books for probably three years by that point. Uh, and the books I'd worked on, we'd kind of been circling Africa. So we'd had books that were set in India, books that were set in North America. <clears throat> and we'd got to the point where really we had to kind of take the bull by the horns and, and take the Courtney's back to Africa. Uh, and I knew there was no way I could um, contribute to those books uh, at the level that Wilbur's readers um, kind of demand without having been there. Uh, and so luckily, um, Wilbur flew me out there. But the other reason I was lucky was because this was in January 2020. Uh, and two months later, the world shut down. Um, so I just got it in um, bef before all that wow. happened. I remember, you know, there were small stories on the news uh, about this sort of virus in China. Um, and everyone thought it would come to nothing. So yes, it was, it was incredible to to be there and seeing that world that it that Wilbur had conjured in my head for so long. Um, so I had such clear ideas of what it was, and it was almost like one of those you know those books where you uh, have like the historic the ruins, and then you have like the uh, the, the overlay of of what it must have looked like in, in days gone by. And it was like I was seeing it through those two levels: what was actually there, and then the kind of mental version that Wilbur had kind of built in my mind. So yeah, it was, it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, as you were, as you were going around places, I realized that you were actually going to a lot of places that we've talked about in these podcasts. I mean, the, 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 the what's the river which marks out um, the, bar, the border of the Sudan? Uh, yeah, there's the, a, sorry, the, the Tugela, the, the Tugela River. Yeah. The Tugela, right. Um, now we were talking about, because uh, we were talking about um, the, those locations and, and when we were talking about when the lion feeds and Rourke's Drift also. And then I'm sure there are places like the Drakensberg, which seem to me to be part of the journey that is taken by the Ballantines coming towards um, South Africa in a falcon's flies. But just to see the landscapes, those gigantic, huge landscapes, which seem to just go on and on and on forever, suddenly that made descriptions that we'd been talking about and reading from the books in our podcast completely come to life. Yeah. And um, in fact, I went back and wrote a whole new um, climactic sequence for the, the book I was working on at the time um, on the basis of what I'd seen, because it, I was in this, uh, in, in fact, in the Drakensberg that you mentioned in the mountains, uh, and there's this river gorge where you sort of clamber up and you're sort of scrambling over waterfalls and through um, pools and through sort of great clefts in the rock in this incredible bowl of, of mountains. Um, and and the climax uh, of, of in fact the book that's coming out next year uh, is entirely based on that, and that's something I'd never have thought of uh, if I hadn't actually been there and kind of walked in in that location. Did, 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 if I remember you quite rightly telling me, hadn't you you thought you would sort of take a bit of an adventure yourself and go off piste a bit, and didn't you bump into a load of locals that said, "Hey, come with us," and didn't they sort of hack their way up the stream with you, and you kind of made some brand new friends that inspired it as well yeah it was an extraordinary day so I'd, I'd hiked up the path as far as the path went and the path ends so going up the it's, this is actually the headwaters of the Tugela um the Tugela starts it sort of plunges I think something like 2,000 feet over this sheer cliff face in this massive kind of mountain amphitheater and then it runs through various kind of clefts and gorges before it emerges <clears throat> into the plain and I'd hiked up as far as the first cleft and I was sort of peering into it and the path ended and I was on my own and I was thinking, well, it's probably about as far as I'm going to go. And then um, this group of uh, young South Africans rocked up and we got chatting, very friendly. Um, and they all sort of stripped off to their, they all had their swimming costumes on, they all stripped off. And they said, right, we're going to go up this, up this gorge. Um, and I thought, well, I, I can't, I mean, I'm desperate to see it. Uh, and, and, you know, I didn't feel entirely safe on my own, but, but with a group, uh, I thought, actually, yeah, let's go for it. Of course, I didn't have my swimming costume on, so I had to strip down to my pants, which was these people I just met. But there we go. That's why. So why do you have to strip down to your pants? Oh, because you're wading. There's no path. You're wading through the river. Um, oh, okay. So the river's coming out of this sort of natural. It's basically carved a channel, which is the cliffs are so high and they sort of come together at the top. So it's created almost a natural tunnel. Um, and it's the stones are worn incredibly smooth. so It's quite hard to keep your footing. Uh, and then as you go up, you eventually um, come to these sort of little cataracts and rapids where, it, and 
and I was thinking, okay, well, that's as far as we're going to go. But um, the guy who was sort of leading this group of people I was with, um, he was like, oh, no, we can get up there. And actually was clambering up the rocks of this little waterfall as it's sort of cascading down, you know, the headwaters of Dugela cascading down in front of you. Um, and then eventually we got up into this little pool that's completely surrounded by, um, by sort of high walls uh, with, again, another waterfall. And this one was too steep to, to climb up, but you could actually swim, you know, the classic kind of Robin Hood type thing. You could actually swim under the waterfall and there's this tiny natural little crevice behind it where you could shelter. Um, yeah, it was incredible. Oh, there, there's one of those in the seventh, in the seventh seal. Yeah. <laughs> the seventh seal, the, uh, the seventh scroll. Yeah. 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 So, Aidan, you weren't with Tom the whole time. No, I wasn't. Nah, no, quite the contrary. He, he had his selfie stick. It's all, it's all, it's all filmed on the selfie yeah, stick. Yeah, no. What what happened was we um we we got to know each other in in England, and uh, as the project came alive, and um, I went to visit Tom and his family at home, uh, did a little bit of preparatory filming and an interview, and chatted about what was what what was on the agenda. And then Tom just, and I filmed this, and it's in the, in the, the, the film, uh, Tom sort of gets these maps out and starts tracing the journey that he's going to be taking. And his two right, yeah. very wonderful kids oh, so pop, sweet. pop their heads around the corner and go, oh, we want to know what's going on. So they dive into the scene and they're sort of asking brilliant questions like, will you be eaten by tigers, Dad? And yeah. things like this. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it was very, very good. And then and Tom sort of uh, did a, a wonderful kind of, breakdown of each stage and each step and what he would be hoping to see and where he'd be hoping to go and of course there's 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 just wasn't a possibility of me being able to travel with him because um there were a few other things that had to be uh, filmed and i had to be in different places and it was a, a very sort of intimate project so there, were, there weren't many of us making it i think there was only yeah, I, I asked for him <laughs> yeah. to come with me, and it, instead they gave me a self That's right, that's <laughs> right, yeah. But I actually, weirdly, funnily enough, I think if you watch it, um, I find, and I was saying this only the other day, I find your stuff, Tom, because we, we had a good chat about it, about, right, okay, just because uh, everyone likes to film in portrait, don't they? So I was saying, please film in landscape, because that's... Fred. Oh, no, I hate people who film in portrait. Yeah. It drives yeah, me yeah, nuts. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was like, please, yeah, 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 yeah. Landscape, that. landscape. And, um, and nothing is off limits. Have fun. Just document. And, and if you see something you like, ping a bit of footage off. Make sure you're in a couple of things. We kind of did a little checklist back and forth, didn't we? And then, and then the results yeah. were just far better than I could have hoped for because they were just full of your wit and charm, which worked really well against the more sort of traditional filming of it. So I think the, the thing comes alive with your bits. I really enjoy them. And especially, especially the bit with Wilbur as well. There's a really, yeah. really sweet bit with Wilbur. Yeah. Yeah. I, also, yeah. I love the adorable bits when you're wearing a little cagoule walking around the, the garden and <laughs> gardening Cape Town. It's teeming with rain and... It was very, very British. Yeah. I'm going to go out anyway. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to let a bit of rain, rain stop me. That's right. Yeah. That was the selfie stick moment, yeah. I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the selfie stick moment. Yeah. The first time yeah. I have ever um, used the selfie stick. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Which that, that, that was entirely true. That wasn't a gag. That was uh, because, again, I'm sort of not a person who likes, not actually not a person who likes to be filmed and not a person who likes to be drawing attention to myself, filming myself. So, um, yeah, the selfie stick was was procured especially for this this trip, and then I thought, God, I'm going to have to use this. Now. I did actually um, feel for you walking through, holding your selfie stick, and thinking, Oh my God, everybody's going to think what a complete plonker I am. Um, yeah, and, that's exactly it. That, that's yeah. why he did it in the rain because there was nobody around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. There weren't many people Honestly. around at that point. Yes. Yeah. Do you find as writers that you 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 um you have like a a, a, a filing cabinet in your brains when you're mm. traveling and walking and looking and seeing and listening and totally yeah yeah i find that them actually being in a place really does inspire you feeling it and and um and smelling it and experiencing it with all the senses smell i think i mean this is a silly thing but that like african earth at night has a spicy smell and i remember years ago and i, I sort of remembered this being on a game drive in south africa and the sort of as after the sun had gone down, the sky was purple. It was like this deep, 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 deep purple. Not not like a sort of sunset purple, but just a and I'm thinking, okay, smells of spice, sunset is purple. And and it kind of goes in the filing cabinet. And then again, I'm mm. I'm I'm pretty sure I've used that 
those kinds of images in 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 books with Wilbur. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't Robin Ballantyne in A Fork and Fly smell Africa from the boat when she can't quite see it in the dark? Mm. Yeah, she does. Yeah. I mean, I, I I've always been a bit nervous though. I've not really tried to compete with. I mean, I always took the view that, that Wilbur, his knowledge of African scenery, of the wildlife, of the trees, the plants, everything, was so extraordinary and so sort of hardwired into him because he'd, he not only he grown up, but his forefathers grown up. I mean, you know, he's a multi-generational African, as it were, that I, I've sort of stayed clear of doing any big kind of wildlife scenes. I think you can't compete with that. Just You'll just sound, feel like a pathetic, washed out carbon copy. But yeah. You say that, Tom, don't you? In, in the documentary, you say that Wilbur actually lived in Africa for nearly 90 years. Yeah. And you had to catch up yeah. everything in two weeks or yeah. whatever it was. However it was, long it was you ten, were there. 10 days. It was 10 days. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 10 days. Yeah. Um, I think. In you know, fairness to our listeners, we should point out that although we've mainly been talking about me in this movie, uh, I am only one small part of it. It's not actually the Tom Harper story. So modest, you really are. You're just you're so so modest. And, you know, it is it is about you. Yeah. Let's well, be honest about this. It is about uh, you. Yeah. the best. Part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're too kind. You're too kind. Um, but no, it is it is it is the Wilbur Smith movie. Um, and Aidan, I think uh, one of the things we discussed early on was that you'd been asked to to make the Wilbur Smith movie, but Wilbur was even more camera shy than I was, and he didn't really want to be in it. Um, so you're sort of confronted with the question of how do you make the Wilbur Smith movie without the title character? That's right. um, obviously, part of the answer is you get Tom Harper in it, um, but that's, that's not the entire answer. So so how did you approach that? Uh, that's a, um, that was a, um, an interesting challenge to make a film about somebody where they were camera shy. <laughs> Um, and didn't <laughs> yeah. want to really have the spotlight put onto them. But um, so, yeah, we kicked it around a little bit and came up and sort of decided to just look at it from a completely different angle. So if you couldn't, if you couldn't deep dive into Wilbur in his life, then how else could we celebrate uh, his work? And it very quickly became clear, especially from speaking to you and speaking to... Um, fellow writers that were very fond of him and people that were very fond of him, just this this groundswell of appreciation and people wanting to tell, it became very, very obvious that people were very keen to tell a story as to what inspired them about his work, how his work had kind of made something click inside uh, for them to achieve something or to give them strength to get through a difficult situation or to turn their life in a different direction. And the more people I was just chat to about the project, still looking for how can we do it, how can we do it, um, the more people sort of came up with these little moments. So the, the, the sort of the light bulb finally went off. <laughs> it was like, ah, here we go. This could be a, a way of approaching it. But how did you find all these people? I mean, some of them are other co-writers, mm. um, but there's also lots of people like the, the guy who goes kite surfing down in South Africa, or, mm. or you know, the, I, I loved also, um, uh, oh, that 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 um, the um, British Asian guy who's the with a Scottish accent, who's the who's the um, detective thriller writer and winner of the of the, of the Wilbur uh, Smith Adventure Prize. Yeah, um, I mean. I suppose some of them was come out of that sort of thing, but but some of them you, I was thinking, how, you know, well, there's a South African sculptor who went flying, and how did you find out find all these people? Um, it, through the the usual way with a documentary, you start spreading the word, you drop into social media, you put stuff on the Wilbur site, um, speak to friends, friends of friends, people just trawl through the internet about anyone who may have got an amazing quote and then just approach them and one thing kind of dominoes into another and um some of those I was quite lucky because I've got a I've been to South Africa quite a few times and I've got some friends in Cape Town and I um I knew that that, that I would be have to go and do a trip to do a little bit of filming in Cape Town and so I just thought well 
I can extend that trip if characters pop up. And then I also intended to go actually travel a little bit around uh, South Africa itself and go to some hotspots um, that, that appear in, in the books and where a few other characters were, and also to mop up a lot of natural history, because I do natural history filming as well. And of course, a massive part of Wilbur's books are animals and the feeling that we've just been describing in the bush, what it smells like, what it sounds like, what it yeah, tastes yeah. like. I want to get as much of that as possible as well. So all these connections over the years of making natural history films and making documentaries in Africa or around Africa with Africans, it just paid dividends and people just popped up like mushrooms one after another. There's a, there's a kind of amazing meta moment where you are filming someone who's filming someone. And it's that um, um, South African um, documentary maker and what, he make, and what you're seeing him film is an incredibly deadly oh. cobra. Cobra. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking, I'm not sure I'd want this assignment because if that, when the, when the cobra is about to be loosed into the wild <laughs> and, and it could slither in your direction, as it happens, it goes in the opposite direction. Yeah. But I would be thinking, if that cobra comes anywhere near me, I'm just, I'm running, but then it's probably going to go faster than I am. Well, I, I felt I mean, quite confident because the, the cobra handler that, so the guy I was filming that you're referring to is Hansa, who is a wildlife filmmaker himself. Yeah. And he is a friend of mine. And I, when I was mentioning this project, I kind of wanted Hansa to help out. Uh, and he said, oh, Wilbur, oh my God, I love his books. I, I, one, of them, one of the reasons I became a wildlife cameraman was because of Wilbur. That was without me telling him what the documentary was about. So I was like, ah, <laughs> tick, we've got another character. So he, he'd filmed with that snake handler before a couple of times in the past on, on uh, Discovery documentaries and whatnot. And his name's Sean. And... Um, one thing he didn't tell me about Sean was that Sean is one of the most, um, let's just say, uh, not particularly safety conscious. <laughs> no, no. Me, yeah. And he, and he, then he went, I think it's actually in the documentary, he goes through this litany of, of bites and attacks and where he's yeah. slightly taken his eye off the ball and been, had his finger bitten off and this has happened and been close to death. But... I, didn't that, well, I just remember that he had, he had actually been bitten by a cobra and I'm thinking, yeah. what, and now you're handling and cobras? now you're handling you... another one. Yeah. And, and also he's handling it in in no way pointing the head away from him. No. He's, he's sort of holding it to get away from the slight stick, but the, the cobra is sort of waving its head in a sort of very cobra-like way with its with its sort of thing flat fair flaring out around its head. And and and, and pointing at him. Yeah, all of the neighbor getting the shot. So yeah. I think uh, you know, there are a number of times he would say, and I've probably cut a few of them out, where he'd say, Is that is that a nice angle? Do you want me to get it a bit angrier? <laughs> yeah, do you want yeah. me to like face you a little bit more? And we're going, No, 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 it's absolutely fine as it is. Don't Keep worry. the cobra nice and calm. Definitely yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. definitely don't I think rule number one of filmmaking is don't piss off the cobra. I mean that's like I think we can, you know, don't do that. That's a rash move. And in life. And yes, yeah. he said that once the cobra gets you, you've got three hours to live, haven't you? And then, yes. then you can't breathe and you collapse and die. Well, your whole system shuts down. It seems like an entirely unpleasant way to go. Yeah, I don't think it's particularly nice. Of course, deadly snakes played a big part in Wilbur's life, didn't they? Didn't he have a couple of oh, near misses? Mambas, in general. They were mambas, yeah. Yes, yes, mambas, yeah. they're mambas. They're mambas. Mambas, yeah. In including the one where his, 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 he's wearing a... Pit a pith hat as it were and the and the the, yeah. the, the the mamba bites the hat and the sort of the venom is dropping down yeah so that's kind of a couple of inches away from death which he's probably experienced numerous times in his life being the upbringing he's had yeah yes i guess that's what all writers should do really isn't it experience a couple yeah. of near death moments mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. uh, we can go on and write about them properly funny yes I... see i prefer to use my imagination <laughs> <laughs> i thought the other, the other interesting thing was was kate silverton the the broadcaster and newsreader and journalist who i'd seen at a couple of 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 sort of wilbur smith events but i hadn't realized quite how dedicated a what a dedicated fan she was wilbur but also how he had really inspired her to go out into the world and, and going off to Zimbabwe and stuff when she was very young, just a teenager. And then she'd, she'd named her own son Wilbur, which is just adorable. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's, I mean, because quite often you can get a sort of, as we're a celebrity endorsement, and it's sort of somewhat half-hearted. But you, when somebody says, no, I've actually named my son Wilbur, you think, Oh, no, okay, you really are a fan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. do. So, um, but she actually, we got a, I'm trying to remember, I don't think it's in 
film, is it? Is there is there the picture? Oh, my memory's so terrible. Of 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 Wilbur meeting little big Wilbur meeting yes, little Wilbur. I think oh, there it is. is. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, great, it is in. So I do remember her. I remember badgering her for the picture. Did you actually make this film? Where you just did we got the right guy on here? <laughs> it was a while ago. Chris, Chris you, you put this guy in. It's clear. It's not a... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know he's all we could afford. Unfortunately, my brain is <laughs> yeah. my brain is full of Yemeni rebel drone attacks on oh, Saudi cool. oil fields at the moment. So I, like, I've only got I've only got a tiny amount of bandwidth to <laughs> remember. Well, it. It's ten, terrible. I'll tell you what. To the next project. If, if I, if if if, if um, I'm maybe giving you, it's always useful to know what it's like to be in the Yemeni drone attacks. The kind of thing which there's a writer in me think, oh, good scene, like that. <laughs> yeah, file that uh, one away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're, getting, we're a long way from Wilbur Smith, except for the fact that what this book is, what the film is about, is the way that the writing springboards. It's almost like his imagination fires other people's imagination to kind of it's almost like he's he's giving you ideas in the stories for what you can do in life yeah. and and there are people who clearly were directly influenced by that yeah and i know that in my own life i was influenced by him telling me when i was sort of just thinking about going into fiction and being incredibly encouraging because as a journalist i was so used to have somebody else tell me what the story was and i just go off and reported so i was a bit nervous about it. it wasn't that i didn't think i could write stories but why would anybody care what what right had i got to to inflict them on anybody else and and wilbur was very encouraging and inspirational and supportive of me in doing that long before i ever we ever worked i mean 20 years before we ever worked together yeah so you know he definitely had direct influence we're talking earlier about you know how, how aiden you you found these stories to put in the movie but uh, i think all of us have found that they just they just come out there everywhere so the mechanic who um services my car i was chatting to him um, a little while ago and he said, oh, I, uh, I hear his dad's a neighbor of mine. She's like, oh, I hear you've been working for, um, for Wilbur Smith. And I said, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I um, love Wilbur Smith. Uh, and he was the reason I went to South Africa, lived there for 10 years, met my wife, uh, and his entire life had been shaped. That, again, was all because he'd read the books. Uh, wow. So the, the, it, you're right, Diana, that it's almost like it. I mean, obviously, lo loads of people write adventure books, loads of people write thrillers, um, but there's something about Wilbur that seems to get in people's heads and just like unlock that door that say, yes, you can do this. I think it's because I was thinking about this myself, like, like you know, you don't read, as it were, a Hercule Poirot book and think <laughs> either I'm going to be a murderer or I'm going to be this little Belgian detective with moustaches. I'm going to go to Belgium. Yes, but I think if you think about a lot, a lot of his characters, it's not like... They're, they're not secret agents. They're not. They're not part of an institution. They're not. They're, he does have some of the more modern books, sort of XSAS, but but they're people mm. who are who are to some extent. I mean, they're extraordinary, ordinary people. But, but then quite often, like I say, we were we were talking recently about Robin Ballantyne. She's a kind of an unusual character in being a woman who's become a doctor in 19th century Britain. But she's nevertheless just a young woman who is thrown into an extraordinary situation. So she's relatable. And I mean, and so is Zuga from the man's point of view. And and so they're characters who are not, as much as they have uh, qualities that, that were sort of aspirational, they don't have any extra superpowers. No. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they're just, they're put into these situations and the situations are made to seem so exciting. And, that, and because they're so vivid and because a lot of the thing that is vivid is about a place that as you've just been discovering you can actually go to yeah i think it's that sense that there is e even in a historical novel that maybe set 200 years ago or 300 years ago there's something relatable and something which says okay, okay i can't be that character but i can have my own adventures i was going to ask tom that that um wilbur writes so vividly about places um did you find when you went to these places that you sort of <laughs> felt you'd been there before and sort of recognised them from in, reading Wilbur's books? In a way, yes. As I say, it's this weird sort of disconnect um, of kind of, I don't know, visiting the movie set, the movie you've seen, but the set look, doesn't look quite the same as the movie. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was this odd sort of familiar but sort of different um, kind of feeling. And certainly I drove i didn't have a lot of time to spend there because it's my, my last day but i drove kind of down the i guess it's the Tugela valley um <clears throat> and actually went uh quite close uh, didn't realize it but i saw a sign on turn off for, for, for michael house school 
um, which is obviously oh wow, Wilbur's School, <laughs> Wilbur's School, the the Eden of Africa, um, and huh. um, and it was actually I'd always imagined it, I guess, kind of like the beginning of um, when the lion feeds, of being this incredibly dusty kind of parched landscape, but actually it's really green and verdant. And part of it was the season I was there. I think it was just after the rainy season, so it was much greener than it would be, um, you know, later in, in the season. But um, completely different to how I'd imagined it. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw you standing in front of the Tugela. It looked so green, it, uh, mm. or in front of the Buffalo River. It looked as though you could almost be in Sussex. Yeah. I don't know, if it's about 43 times the size of Sussex. I know <laughs> what you mean. I mean, I mean uh, yes, it's true that if you, I mean, I, I live on the Sussex Downs, so you can, can get up on the top of the Downs and you can see quite a long way. But I mean, it's a much more gentle, domesticated landscape. The thing about that, this mm-hmm. the, the South African landscape, is it's, it's, it's the immensity of it, isn't yeah. it? And the huge sky, everything is bigger. It's like Texas or something. Everything is just being multiplied by 10. It's just amazing. Yeah. Tom, were the Zulu battlefields as haunting and extraordinary as, as you were expecting them to be? I was just about to, I was just looking up, I just get this spelling of Isandwala, so I could say Isandwana. Yes, Isandwala is amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that is, that is very haunting. Rock's Drift, um, Rock's just weird because you feel like, because you've, you've seen the movie of, of Zulu, so you have a very vivid image of what it looks like and it actually doesn't really look like that. Um, so that was, again, a kind of disconnect. Uh, but Isandwala is amazing. So what's what is it? This, what is it? This I mean, when you get there, what is the haunting aspect of it? How do you feel it? Um, the because you without specifically, you've got this great kind of knob of rock kind of sticking up out of the plain, um, like right. again, so like some sort of, sort of monument valley type thing. Um, yeah. And you've actually got, as I recall, you've got like little um, plaques in the ground that tell you sort of where different units were as they kind of got hacked to pieces. Oh my God. So you, you don't have to, you know, you, the reminders are literally under feet, underfoot as to kind of what's happened there. Um, the other interesting thing about Isandwala when I was there was that it was very close. It was like two days, three days before the anniversary, um, coincidentally. And there's a massive marquee up because the Zulus still use it as a great kind of rallying point, right. a great kind of moment of victory in, in their sort of national past so quite right too well, yeah, yeah yeah um so the zulu king was actually gonna oh some great zulu dignitary was gonna rock up and and use it for a, a sort of a big um celebration of zuluness um on on the anniversary of the battle so so again that was um well we did we do tours to the battlefields of waterloo or d-day or stuff so yeah i mean they're entitled to go. yeah does Wade, Wade Courtney, that, that outcrop you were talking about, doesn't Wade Courtney die sort of halfway up that? Yeah, right, right at the very top, I think. He sort of retreats and retreats and retreats yeah. up it. And I think he's one of the last ones to be killed near the top, yeah. But Aidan, you, you've lived in Africa, haven't you? So you, you know quite a lot about Africa. Yeah, uh, East Africa. So I lived in Tanzania for about two years. And uh, that's how I got into filmmaking, actually. I was traveling. I, I kind of did a Wilbur. Um, and uh, ended up after university kind of taking a little bit of time out, wanted to go and, and see Africa because my dad, as I said earlier, had been regurgitating Wilbur Smith stories, pretending they were his own and telling me, you've got to go and see Africa. It won't be around forever. You've got to go and see it the way I'm describing it. Yeah. And um, so I did. And then I ended up um, in Kenya for a while. And then the BBC rocked up making a, um, a series called Big Cat Diary. Oh, yeah. And I'd somehow through, this is very, very uh, how you get things done in, in Nairobi. I needed a work permit and I met some guy who knew some guy who knew some guy whose brother worked in the, um, uh, the um, immigration office, uh, slipped my passport in, bing, 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 got a two-year work permit. And then suddenly the BBC are there saying, gosh, if only we had someone who knew the area and could do this and could help out and knew a little bit about natural history. And so I fibbed and said, oh, I, I think all of that. <laughs> and then um, in the kind of couple of days before everyone descended in the Maasai Mara to start filming, I just swatted up on, uh, got a GPS and worked out where everything was and so I wouldn't get lost. Um, and I, had, I used to be able to speak Swahili relatively well in those days wow. and so I 
got a radio and tuned. I'm telling you all my secrets here. Yeah, yeah. And I tuned into all of these safari driver channels um, because I was put by the BBC in charge of the leopard finding <laughs> department, <laughs> which, which, which is, is in its own way very um, flattering and damning <laughs> because they're buggers to find. So, so I started surf. I'd go off on my own really early in the morning, leave camp in the middle of the Masai Mara, and uh, didn't know anybody, so it would be very easy to slip out. And I'd kind of go cover of darkness and just start surfing and listening. And then I'd hear someone saying, oh, we found, you know, in my very, you know, okay Swahili, oh, I think, there's, I think they're coming from over there, and they, they've got a leopard. So I'd scooch up, wait for them to kind of have their fill, leave. I'd then radio it in and say, oh, I found the leopard, BBC. <laughs> and then they would come in. Incredibly I, you know, enterprising, by the way. found a leopard <laughs> 28 days in a row. And they'd never, the BBC had never experienced anything like it. They thought wow. that I was a sort of leopard whispering god. And that was my, that was my, that's how I got into filmmaking. <laughs> so... Well, Sierra, you're not just a, re a renegade maverick, you're a leopard whisperer as well. That's, that's impressive. And, and a bare-faced liar. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. But, um, yeah. I was just, do you know, I think, I'll tell you, bit, as yeah. you were describing, I thought, what it is, what's Wilbur-esque about it, is just the bare-faced gumption to mm. just go ahead mm. and do it. That's very Wilbur, and that's what yeah. a young, I can just imagine, if, again, in one of his more modern books, a young Wilbur character doing precisely that kind of thing and just having the sheer brass nerve to just I think his characters from... from and, the, and pull it off. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. I think the yeah. books yeah. I've read, his characters seem to notice an opportunity and there's a slit in the door. And Absolutely. you go through yeah. it, you either put your toe in, block the door, barge your way in, or you let You barge, definitely. And, um, no, you barge. If you're, if you're a Wilbur character, yeah. you barge. You definitely yeah, yeah, barge. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I... But that's my point, is, is, that, is that the books teach you, and they because the, the, there is a kind of concept that, that it's about enterprise, not in a kind of capitalist sense, but in a sense of just having the enterprise, the, the imagination, the energy, the determination to, to go after something. And I think that's definitely if you read Wilbur Smith books and write Wilbur Smith characters, you know, that is absolutely how they are. And, and so obviously if you've been hearing these stories since you were a little kid and they've been in your, in your ear, um, then of course you're going to behave like that. So, so Aidan, what's the most frightening thing you've done? Well, filming. 28 leopards sounds like quite a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that Cobra is pretty high up the list. <laughs> I, I remember once, I remember once, it wasn't frightening at the time, but I've, um, I remember, I'm not very good with heights. And I remember some, I was in Chile and doing some filming and this guy said, uh, I've got a helicopter. Would you like to go? I can take you up and you can get some aerial shots. And so I just thought, yeah, great, fantastic. So um, I turn up and he's taken all the doors off. And um, he says, basically, you can sit there and you can put your feet on the little uh, um, ramps, the, like the, the helicopter skid, skid, yeah. skids, and then you can just lean out and film. You get a lovely uninterrupted view. Then, you know, the, the helicopter won't be in your shot. So I'm thinking again that, yeah, that's he's, how kind of him. That's very thoughtful. So that, I get some nice clean shots. So we go up. He, he then gives me um, a bungee. And that put around my waist, and then it's sort of just tied to, to a chair. And then we go quite high, I have to say. And then, and then he decides that we'll fly over an active volcano because they have a lot of those in Chile. So there's one point where I'm filming, and it's this. It's, the shot looks great, and it's this beautiful volcano that's snow covered because they have these snow covered volcanoes. But it's yeah, yeah. it's it's wisping. And then the sun is rising behind us, which is casting this, the volcano to create this incredible shadow that goes on as far as the horizon. And then the wind changes, and then all of the wispy stuff starts to come towards us. And I'm smelling it, and it's quite toxic. And at that point, I remember kind of going, I'm frightened. Of, suddenly it hit me. I think it's because I took my eye away from the eyepiece, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm about... 10,000 feet up, I'm terrified of heights, I'm being poisoned, and I'm being held on by some shoelaces with a man I've never met before, and I don't know if he's any good flying <laughs> a helicopter. 
And it's, it's things like that that, I, and I, I question my own sanity rather than anything. But I just keep saying yes to stuff. <laughs> but luckily, nothing's really taken me out yet. So touch wood. But um, I noticed when you were filming this film, uh, you you had a drone to to go up and get those aerial shots. Yes, that's right. Those were in the olden days before you had drones. Nowadays, <laughs> yes. the drone does it all. Yes, absolutely mm. right. Oh, I love the aerial. I, I love the aerial shot of Tom's house. I was, I, was, I went back and rewound several times. And yes, that was not, not done in a helicopter at all. That was uh, yeah, I was firmly on the ground. Yeah. Hearing all these stories, I'm actually now rather glad that you didn't come with me to South Africa. <laughs> say, say, safer with a selfie stick. Yes, magnet for disaster. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. I, I say there's, there's so much more of Wilbur's Africa to film. But I'm sure we could find something for Aidan that would scare the life out of him. <laughs> I would love to go down the Nile and follow the, the story of River God. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, you can't do it at the moment. Well, I don't, don't think Sudan's very safe at the moment, is it? Well, no. And quite a lot, of course, quite a lot of, of what is in River God takes place in Sudan and in, and in parts of Ethiopia, which probably aren't very safe either. Ethiopia, I find so tantalizing. Yeah. A fascinating country. Have you ever been to Ethiopia, Aidan? Uh, I I did once to film the um, the churches, um, but I was it was, oh, wow. it, it was an in and out job. Yeah, um, um, Lalabella, I think, and then it's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, um, that was spectacular. But I was I've got a quick question for you guys. So if you do you find say for example with Wilburn, and we've we've learnt with all these different um, real people that have been affected by his work and have gone on to be inspired by him to lead their lives in a certain way do you do you think that if you've got a Wilbur story that you've read or a journey or some characters that have undergone something within a particular environment on a journey and you would like to like as you were saying you'd like to do the Nile the way that there is in River Gods or do, do you think that gives you a much more exciting agency to go off and follow that or would you rather go and do an experience entirely fresh and original on your own i quite like having a sense of purpose it sort of focuses the mind i've never been one for just going off and traveling for i've gone tons of different places and it's often or usually been as a journalist on assignment Mm. there was there was a reason you were going to a place there was something you had to get when you were there a piece of information or a story or interview somebody whatever it was so for me, I'm very. I think I think it's the. I think it's just the, the journalist. You go in. You you go in. You get what you want. You come out again. I think that's. I've just spent too long doing that. That's how I think of it. I'm very very, object objective driven. I do understand what you mean, Dan. I was going to say the same to you, Tom, because your trip, I think, you, if I may put words in your mouth. I think you had a great time because you had a wonderful itinerary to follow that was mirroring mm. things that you'd read about, but then you could go off piste as well in between. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, it is pretty much coincidental because the trip was planned basically on sort of the most logical route to hit all the places I wanted to see. But actually, the book that came out of it is a book called Warrior King, which is the one that's coming out next year. And the, the actually, the, the journey of the character actually um, starts in Cape Town, um, goes goes to Durban uh, as it is now, uh, then kind of goes up into um, Zululand, uh, and then eventually ends up in the Drakensberg. So actually, the, the the progress of the book mirrors almost precisely my actual itinerary, which wasn't planned at all. Oh, that's great! Um, but yeah, so it's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, well, I think as a travel writer, as a travel writer, I've always found if you go to a place with a purpose, it you get so much more out of it, so much more depth, yeah. and I think. With regard to Wilbur's books, I mean, I wouldn't have known I wanted to go down the Nile Mm -hmm. or I wouldn't have known I wanted to do the garden route in South Africa or whatever. I simply wouldn't have known. So, A, he opens you up to these places and then B, he excites you about them. So you want to follow, you want to find all those points of excitement that you've remembered from the books. I was going to say the other thing we're missing out is people. I mean, I'm as interested in finding characters it's the just as much as the landscape you have to get a character that matches the place and and there's the human aspect is at least as important as the as the natural one yeah definitely and again that's as you say you know we're we're all kind of talked about the characters in the landscape and you know wilbur inhabited that landscape like no one else so you know in a sense we're all 
trying to catch up with him. The sort of fact that I love is is like the one you told us, Tom, about the the second highest waterfall in the world yes. on, on the Tugela. I had no idea. I mean, um, I love that sort of. Just thing. out of curiosity, when you say the second highest, you mean it, it can't be the second highest in altitude? Is it like the drop is the second greatest drop? Yeah, the, the drop. Yeah, yeah, the drop. So yeah. it's Angel Falls, somewhere like that, isn't that like in South South Africa, South America? Isn't that the? That's supposed to be the highest. Yes. Right. So this is just seconds the Angel Falls. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and is it is it is it when you get to the top? Is it a hell of a long way down? Yeah, yeah, it's very very long way down, um, and just like sheer cliff. Um, yeah, in this sort of I say this massive kind of natural amphitheater made by the mountains. It's an extraordinary place. Uh, wow, that's not that's not the one where occasionally you see people doing selfies in a little pool at the very top, where they it, there's a natural pool with a shelf edge, and then this drop off. And oh, oh! I don't know. That no, that's Vic, that oh, Victoria okay. Falls has that. Doesn't Victoria? Vic Falls has that. I think. Yeah. I mean, that the other one may do too. But I know that Vic Falls has got a place where you can, if you're mad enough to sort of <laughs> risk yeah. the kind, because one false move, and, you know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I, I did not pick myself a stick <laughs> yeah. up there, so I, I, I cannot report back. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why we didn't get the shot. You see, now yeah. this is where the, the the editor and me said, okay, yeah, "Where's the shot? Exactly. Where's where's <laughs> the the money? The money. You didn't get the money shot." Yeah, well, yeah. that's why I needed Aiden with me because he'd have uh, yeah, yeah. Put, put, he'd, Aiden would have put me in the pool and then pushed me over the thing just to get the shot. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as long as I've got your <laughs> yeah. release form, it's fine. I must say, it's great credit to you, Tom, that your piece came out so well. Considering I thought you had a, a huge crew around you, the fact that you'd done it all yourself and it, it came out so professional. He's kind of an auteur, isn't he? So, you're like Bradley Cooper or Woody Allen. You're both the star and the director. Yes. If, if you look at the... Uh, Clint Eastwood. You, you look like Clint Eastwood too. Uh, yeah. It's for, for the for the, all our podcast listeners, uh, I, I can assure you this is 100% true. I look exactly like Clint Eastwood. Uh, just Do you feel lucky, budget. punk? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. I Did mean, you enjoy filming, Tom? Um. Did you? Sorry, I'll ask that again. Yeah. Did you enjoy the process of, of, of being forced to film I, things while you were on your journey? I hated it less than I thought I would. I thought I would absolutely hate it. Um, and actually, although there was definitely moments when I felt self-conscious, um, I really liked having doing the, the it forced me to kind of reflect on what I was doing rather than just kind of go, go, go um, and just take those moments and... Um, and sometimes it was nice, like, so that I think there's a bit of the movie where I come to Shackerland, which is like this Zulu-themed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great, uh, yeah. Disneyland, effectively, uh, without the rides. Um, and it's, there's just the incongruity of it. Um, and I think I just, you know, just flicked on the camera and just, and just talked about how I was feeling about it. Um, and, and, and it was nice to... Both to, for my own sake, actually, to commit that to memory, you know, to, to the record, uh, and to remember that. But also, you know, it's not just me on my own in a car thinking, "God, this is mad." But actually, to be, you know, so, someone else will 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 know what that moment was. And and also that the diminutive, I mean, teeny weeny Zulu warrior called Ron. I thought that was that was a wonderful comedy moment. I thought. Right. Yeah. It's arrow. There's no arrow. It's prayed arrow. It says Ron. That's right. That's right. I, lo- I do like those because I think we sort of decided to make them almost like little postcard moments, some of those shots. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The writing as well. Yeah, yeah. that was great. Yeah, and an arrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like the fact, actually, particularly in the early bits, that you weren't slick. <laughs> Thank you, I, mean, I think. It's actually made, no, because it Charming. No, no, no. no absolutely, I absolutely mean, I mean it nicely. It was, it was like, it was very honest. It was like, because it's not somebody who's just this, who's sort of, so professionalized that that it seems a bit bogus and a bit kind of cool. it was very direct and and very and very you and i really like i'm 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 not i'm not for once i'm actually not taking the mickey i really did like it and 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 i like the fact that to say it like the fact that it was like here's somebody giving a very honest account and they're not as i say they're not they're not just doing a a, a routine that they could have knocked off a thousand times this is somebody who really has not used a selfie stick before, and is a little bit embarrassed about doing it, like any of us would be. And I think it, I think it really was incredibly effective. And then and then as your kind of adventure went on, you kind of got more and more used to it. And then you did end up 
in some quite amazing places that made me think, gosh, I'd like to go there. Yeah, I'd not thought about that. Yeah. Were you one take, Tom, or did you have to do a lot of takes? <laughs> it looked as so, though, you know, that was it. That was the one yeah. take. I, I can answer that because <laughs> I had to look through it all. <laughs> ah. Ah. So, so um, I, w- I didn't quite know how Tom would take to it because I could see um, underneath his sort of smiling, nodding, um, slightly grumpy acceptance of the of the of the task and my sheet of do's and don'ts. Um, I was thinking, oh, I, I've got a funny feeling here that we might only get one or two, uh, you know, shots or one or two little postings back. So then, when I saw how many Tom had actually done, like it, 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 he very cleverly thought of it like doing a diary, um, so that it, there was a sense of structure to follow, and it worked perfectly and beautifully yeah, it does. And, and he was a one take wonder every single wow, one of those things is. is one take and and he's cleverly kind of left a little bit of an in and a little bit of an out so that there's a bit yeah, of a pause so go. we could edit around the things nicely um he did that's spot on it was very very good and great fun to edit and did you uh, have to say that god he's gonna he's gonna be insufferable now you do realize that don't you so <laughs> I'm, I'm just waiting for you to sign me up for the sequel now. Well, I think we've got enough to make another one, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, yeah. The journey um, behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah, we definitely all want to be in the sequel. Yeah, yeah absolutely, without a doubt. But, or may, maybe a podcast making off. Yes, that's a good idea. Well, absolutely. I mean, we we, we have to do a podcast from the Nile somewhere, or from the top of Table yes. Mountain, or yeah. from the Great Zimbabwe, or something. Well, we yeah. definitely have to. Absolutely. And we'll need somebody to film us doing it. Yeah. I'm your man. I mean, I guess my question for you, Aidan, is having talked about having been your own kind of harshest critic uh, and, and being given this sort of tough brief to make, make the movie about the author who doesn't want to be in the movie. Um, were, were you happy with the way it turned out? I really, really held in, in my head how will the people involved respond. So those are the people I want to be happy. So yourself, for example, or um, you mentioned earlier on, there's a guy in it who's kite surfing, or there's a there's a fellow who is a sculptor who, you know, we go up in his in his plane that he built mm. himself, and he's very inspired by Wilbur. So all of these wonderful people gave their time and their energy and their effort. So I kind of felt, and and also the great man himself. I I, I always had in the back of my mind, Wilbur and Nisa will sit down and watch this, and what will they think? So it wasn't all the other people. It wasn't me, really. It wasn't. It was yeah. all of these other sort of, you know, um, members of the public that might watch it. It was the people involved and the main people that it was about, Wilbur, you know, and Nisa by extension. And so once I had heard that, uh, for example, there was a lovely story with Wilbur and Nisa that I, I, I knew... I'd been told that they were going to watch it on a particular evening. When it was finished, it was edited, it had been graded, the sound had all been mixed beautifully, and and there was the prod, you know, the finished product. Off it went to Nisa and Wilbur. And um, you know, I sort of kept looking at the phone, going, was there a message through, or was there nothing yet at all? God, I would have thought maybe I'd have something while they're watching, nothing at all. And then there was a pause of about five, ten minutes. And then just this sort of simple line came through, which is it, um, they both cried. So that kind of made me go, oh, I, I, now I think that we did a good job. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. I, I loved the bit where, is it, is it Tom Wakeling? Is that, Chris, Chris uh, Wakeling. Sorry. Chris, Chris Wakeling. Chris Wakeling, yeah. sorry. Um, it was, it, so I loved it with Chris Wakeling and his yeah. father, who was the RAF pilot. And the two things that were lovely about that were the first, well, number of things, that first, that just like you, Aidan, that you know, it wasn't that his father had read the stories to him, but he'd, he'd been reading, that Chris had got into reading Wilbur's books as a kid from seeing his father read them. And then they'd read them, to, they'd go on holiday and they'd read the same book together. And it was a point of contact between them, which was really lovely. Yeah. And, and, and the, it was then so sweet, and his father had been a, an Air Force pilot, so I mean, a, a jet pilot, I mean, a fighter pilot. He was a Top Gun. Yeah, I mean, incredibly Top Gun, actually gone off and beaten the Americans their own game kind of thing. 
and and so as, as kind of macho heroic and a, a job as you could have but he said oh, i'm so in awe that chris is writing with wilbur smith and is and it was just so sweet and then there's very sweet and then there was a yeah. moment where he was watching his younger self in the in the jets and and he got very emotional and it was it was just but what was lovely was the idea that these books they had acted as this glue in a father-son relationship and an inspiration to both of them that had that had then of course been given a new life with one of them then co-writing with Wilbur. I thought that was just the most beautiful sequence. It's it's strange how uh, that that theme came up again and again and again with different people we spoke to. I obviously didn't want to make it too repetitive, but for example, uh, a number of fathers and sons would say, especially in kind of that slightly more as you consider machismo, macho kind of world, yeah. where you don't really talk about your feelings. And so Wilbur's books were something that could... Um, or like a catalyst for conversation and yeah, yeah. fathers and sons. Okay, they weren't going to talk about their feelings, but maybe they were indirectly through. Well, they created they create a neutral something like that creates what you might call a safe space. Mm. It's a neutral space where you can talk about things, and and you're sharing it, and it's kind of non-controversial and it's not. Yeah. But but stuff will come out in the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's bound to. Yeah. Well, for example, Chris said to me not long after we finished that scene where in the movie you've got the father and son watching yeah. the, the old archive footage of, you know, the, the father being a Top Gun. Who and was incredible. When, when he got out of the... When you see the picture of him as a young man getting out of his jet. Magnificent looking. It, looks like, it does look like a, it looks like a movie star. Absolutely. I mean, it absolutely does. Movie star. Um, well, and the, but the, weirdly, the, the conversations that, they, that were naturally inspired by them watching... After, you know, and the father got very emotional, um, mm. after we'd finished and, you know, had a cup of tea and said our goodbyes, Chris sort of escorted me to the door and he said, thank you so much. We've never spoken about that before. Wow. Um, so even the act of making the film had been a catalyst. The act of making a film about Wilbur's books that are a catalyst was wow. a, another catalyst for them. Yes, so yes, yes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very moving. That's, that was definitely one of my favourite sequences in the film, apart from one of Tom's bits, obviously. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and actually, I mean, we talked about the things that inspire people, uh, the, the, the Wilbur's sort of extraordinary inspirational effect on people. And, I mean, his books, that was, covers a lot of ground, but the, if there's one theme that's like core Wilbur and his fathers and sons, um, and yes. I think it's that married with the characters, married with the, the extraordinary places, but I think it's, maybe it's that that... It, particularly for men but obviously also for women um really it gets inside people's heads because these are some of the most kind of fundamental relationships we have and wilbur's just like always always sort of dissecting that and and these novels speak to, speak to those relationships yeah they do anybody who's listened to this podcast who i'm sure is now thinking i really want to see um, um wilbur smith inspiring adventures yeah. it's on amazon prime it's right there i found it with no trouble at all just Go onto your search, put in Wilbur Smith, and it will pop up, and it's well worth watching. Alternatively, if you look for movies starring Tom Harper, there is only one. Yes, um, yes, and it is this. Uh, but, but but you know, I think I think I think that's a category which is bound to get bigger. I mean, I, I I frankly, I would be astounded if if there aren't phones ringing in Hollywood even now. I mean, I, I think they're looking at the new Netflix yeah. series. Frankly, that would be good. Actually, do we know anyone at Netflix? Well, thank you very very much to Aidan Woodward for joining us Pleasure. and being such a, a really great and um, anecdotal leopard hunting, leopard finding guest. We've never had, we've never had a guest before. Volcano skinning. Yeah, I mean, the, boy, that's the most Wilbur-esque guest we've had so far. So thumbs up to that. Nice hanging out with you guys. Very nice to talk to you. The absolute highlight of his trip, of course, has been going to see Wilbur himself and Niso. Meeting Wilbur at his house here in Africa, to see him in this study sitting at this desk where he's written so many of these great, great enduring novels and surrounded by all his research materials and his history was just an amazing experience. He was gracious, very friendly. He knows what he's about. He, um, he told me to do the, uh, do the best I could with the writing um, and make it the best I can, which obviously I will. Yeah, he's a great man. 
and a really great mentor. So, goodbye, video diary. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.